I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. So wrote Bill Taylor, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, in a text message to Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, on September 9th, 2019. It was one of a series of devastating text messages released by three House committees late Thursday night, pouring more fuel onto the impeachment fire now consuming the House of Representatives. Were these text messages the proverbial smoking gun? Or does President Trump and his loyal Republican allies in the Congress still have a defense? We'll discuss on this special bonus episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So quite the bombshell released by the uh, House committees Thursday night following the testimony of the special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, who spent eight and a half hours uh, behind closed doors at a deposition on Thursday. We still don't know exactly what Volker had to say, but man, these text messages are not helpful to the president and his defense. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the totality of his testimony. I mean, a bunch of stuff has dribbled out, including these smoking text messages. But one thing well, that's, that's not dribbled out. They, they they put these out, and uh, they uh, obviously. Well, yeah, but uh, there Adam Schiff, but and there company, are more. It, it, but new, they put them out. Yeah. But my understanding is that they have not put all of them out yet. So there's other stuff that's going to come out. I think they are being strategic in what they release and what they don't release. But let's just, you know, note this. Kurt Volker is the very first witness in the new impeachment inquiry. So, yep. you know, there are many more to come. And he wasn't even a, you know, a fully uh, cooperative witness. I mean, you know, my understanding is, you know, he also was, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, defending Trump. So he's not like a state's witness here. So there may be other witnesses who will be more hostile toward the president. I'm just saying that this is the very beginning. Where will it lead from here? I think that the bottom line is, and I think we should just go over these texts so people understand just why they are so significant and why people are spending so much time talking about them today. Because if you go back to the July 25th phone call, we know the president explicitly brings up uh, Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden to the president of Ukraine, Zelensky. And that is, <laughs> in many ways, the smoking gun right there. The mere fact that Trump was raising this at all in a call with a foreign leader, asking him to launch an investigation whose only real purpose would be to help Trump's political campaign is a clear, to many people, abuse of his authority as president. He's This is not a product of a well-thought-out American foreign policy. It's policy 
its actions only for the purpose of helping Trump. So you have that. You have the president, of course, and his defenders denying that there was any linkage between the request and the suspension of military aid. Then you, we learn from this series of text messages that there was quite a bit of discussion about linkage. For starters, it was linkage between setting up a White House meeting with Zelensky and the president and getting Zelensky to do the president's bidding on launching these investigations into Biden and supposed Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. And you go through those texts and it's quite clear that at least as far as that setting up meeting part of it, there was a linkage in the minds of the U.S. diplomats trying to carry out the president's wishes. Yeah, that is absolutely explicit in these text messages. And so, you know, what you already have is it ironclad evidence. You know, we only have the words of uh, these uh, senior ranking uh, diplomats who are, as you put it, trying to carry out the orders of of the White House. But that seems to be clear evidence uh, that the White House, that the president was um, selling the prestige of his office, a meeting with with a foreign leader in exchange for help with his campaign and investigating um, his enemies. So to me, it looks uh, clear as day. I think the it is the military assistance part that is going to have be a much bigger punch because you know there you're talking right. about almost four hundred million dollars in military assistance. I mean that that is holding back a you know very significant policy which is regarded to be in the interests of the United States of, of American national security unless the president and helping the Ukrainians stand up to the Russians who've invaded their country. Exactly. I mean this is exactly. uh, in many ways about Russia, right? It's an extension of the Russia story. Let's read some of these texts so people understand and get some sense of the flavor of what we're talking about. And let's start out with July 19th, 2019, and this is a text Text exchange between Kurt Volker, the special envoy to Ukraine, and Gordon Sunland, the uh, U.S. ambassador to the European Union, a uh, Trump loyalist, a political appointee, a guy whose companies funneled a million dollars to Trump's inauguration through a, a number of LLCs. So it wasn't really known about his uh, funding role until much later. But it gives you a sense of who they are and what they're saying. And it starts with July 19th, and uh, they are talking about about the upcoming telephone call between President Trump and uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. Volker starts it out at uh, 4.49 p.m. on that day. Can we three do a call tomorrow, say noon Washington? The third, by the way, is Bill Taylor, a name to uh, keep in mind, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. So three American ambassadors on this text exchange and Sondland, the uh, European Union guy uh, writes, looks like POTUS call tomorrow. I spoke directly to Zelensky and gave him a full briefing. He's got it. And Volker writes at 7.01 p.m. that day. Good. Had breakfast with Rudy this morning. Teeing up call with Yermak. Yermak is a, the top aide to Zelensky on Monday. Must have helped. Most important is for Zelensky to say that he will help investigation and address any specific personnel issues if there are any. To say, for most important is for Zelensky to say he will help investigation. Well, there it is. And in other text messages, that's tied explicitly to 
getting Zelensky this much sought after meeting with with President Trump. You know, I don't think it could be a lot clearer. I mean, the role of. Well, it does get clearer because let's read on July 21st. Taylor, Gordon, <laughs> one thing Kurt and I talked about yesterday was Sasha Donliak's point, we don't know who she is, that President Zelensky is sensitive about Ukraine being taken seriously, not merely as an instrument in Washington. Sondland, absolutely, but we need to get the conversation started and the relationship built. Giuliani, three days later, is advocating for the phone call. Let's get going. And then on July 25th, uh, which is the morning of the phone call, Volker writes, good lunch, thanks. He had just had lunch with Yermak. Heard from White House. Assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate, get to the bottom of what happened in 2016, we will nail down date for visit to Washington. So Zelensky, you do the president's bidding. Say you're going to investigate what happened in 2016, the Ukrainians trying to... uh, tilt the election to Hillary Clinton over him, you do that, then you'll get your meeting. And meanwhile, the other thing that the White House is doing is putting pressure on the Zelensky government to put out a statement explicitly saying that they are going to investigate Hunter Biden and, and Vice President Biden and the 2016 election. And, you know, this is where I was going a minute ago. I mean, the role that Volcker plays in all of this is so fascinating because, you know, obviously he has now been this, uh, you know, key witness uh, who's uh, revealed all of these important texts to the committees, you know, but he was also complicit in this conspiracy in, in some ways. He's in a very kind of difficult position. And so it is actually uh, Volcker himself who drafts this statement that they are pressuring the Ukrainian government uh, to put out publicly. Let me read the statement. Special attention should be paid to the problem of interference in the political process of the United States, especially with the alleged involvement of some Ukrainian politicians. By the way, it's ironic since Trump is actually soliciting the interference of the Ukrainians in our 2020 election, but that's not what they're referring to. I want to declare that this is unacceptable. We intend to initiate and complete a transparent and unbiased investigation of all available facts and episodes, including those involving Burisma, that's the energy company uh, on whose board Hunter Biden sat, and the 2016 U.S. elections, which in turn will prevent the recurrence of this problem in the future. So that is drafted by Kurt Volker. And in the end, the Ukrainians did not issue that statement. Um, In some ways, they showed more spine than a lot of other people in terms of standing up to Trump. Um, Right. Well, you know, it's amusing. If you you look at the uh, text exchange between Volker and uh, Andrei Yermak, the aide to uh, Zelensky, just before that, this is on August 10th, Yermak is telling Volker, once we have a date, that's a date for a White House meeting with the president, we'll call for a press briefing announcing upcoming visit and outlining vision for the reboot of U.S.-Ukraine relationships, including, among other things, Burisma and election meddling in investigations. So the Ukrainians are saying, wait a second, you give us the date, then you'll get your statement. (laughs) And of course, the uh, Americans are saying, no, you give us the statement, and then you'll get your date. (laughs) Right. And ultimately, Yermak, you know, objects to putting 
specifically citing uh, Burisma and the, 20, and the 2016 election in the statement, and they don't do it. And this is all happening, I think, what, in, in late August. And that brings us to, I think, in some ways, the most important and damning of these texts. And that's the exchange between uh, William Taylor, the ambassador, and uh, Gordon uh, Sondland, which you alluded to Taylor a moment ago. Mike, why don't you uh, read that, that yeah, text? We should read the, uh, the, the full uh, exchange. Uh, I'll be Taylor, you can be Sondland. Uh, so September 9th, 2019. And by the way, just amazing. That's less than a month ago. Less than yeah. all yeah. this was unfolding yeah. in real time in the month of September. Taylor writes at 12.31 a.m., the message to the Ukrainians and Russians we send with the decision on security assistance is key. With the hold, we have already shaken their faith in us. Thus my nightmare scenario. So just dissect that for a moment. He's talking about the holdup on the military aid. It's sending a message to the Ukrainians and the Russians. He's saying, and they have has shaken their faith, the Ukrainians, in us. A nightmare scenario. Counting on you to be right about this interview, Gordon Taylor continues. Gordon Sondland replies, Bill, I never said I was, quote, right, unquote. I said we are where we are and believe we have identified the best path forward. Let's hope it works. Taylor writes back at 1247 a.m. As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Okay, so this is key. And what I'm about to read. But first of all, what I said on the phone. Uh, so clearly, there's a conversation here about all of this that w- we don't know about. And so I don't know whether William Taylor is going to be uh, testifying or uh, will be deposed. He is a current diplomat. I don't know if uh, the administration will try to exert executive privilege, but uh, he obviously is going to be key to this. And what happened in that conversation will be key. All right. And here's. Sondland's response. Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quos of any kind. The president is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. If you still have concerns, I recommend you give Lisa Kenna or S a call to discuss them directly. Thanks. So I love the change in tone in Sondla's response, because all of a sudden it sounds to me like he's uh, reading off White House talking points and doing a little bit of ass covering here. I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear. No quid pro quo. You know, you know what this reminds me of in the Senate Watergate hearings. John Dean talked about the first gives the testimony about the famous, you know, March meeting in which they're discussing hush money and quotes Nixon saying that uh, we could get that. They want the the Watergate burglars need a million dollars. I think it was for Howard Hunt to pay his legal fees if he's going to keep quiet. And Nixon, according to Dean, says, you know, we could get that. It would be no problem. And then Haldeman, when he testifies, says, 
But then the president said, but that would be wrong, <laughs> uh, which, of course, is not exactly <laughs> what he said. That, yeah, that didn't, I don't think that up. turned up on the tapes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and so it'll yeah. be interesting. There was, some, there was some elliptical reference to that, but it was not the way Haldeman presented it. And I have a feeling okay, that so- Sondland quoting the president here saying the president has been crystal clear. No quid pro quos of any kind well, is kind of like Haldeman. In quoting Nixon, that would be wrong. Right, well, I'm going to venture a guess that in that previous conversation that Sondland and Taylor have, that, that uh, Taylor alludes to, that phone conversation, Sondland never says the president was crystal clear, no prid quo quo. I don't think that phrase is going to uh, yeah. uh, come up in that conversation. And by the way, speaking of Sondland talking a little bit differently in this text than he apparently did at other times. The Wall Street Journal, as we record this uh, this podcast, they just broke a story about Sondland uh, sometime in, in late August, I believe, meeting with Senator Ron Johnson, of a Republican from Wisconsin, in which, according to Johnson, who told this to the Wall Street Journal, Sondland told them there was a a explicit connection between holding back the military assistance and asking for investigations. Right. And let's also remember that there's a five hour gap, almost five hours between Taylor's last line in that text message. It's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. And when Sondland writes back, Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. So there you have it. That is the evidence speaking seemingly loud and clear in those text messages. So what does it add up to? And we've actually got a guest to talk a little bit about that. We're going to bring him in in a moment. Uh, Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor and legal analyst on CNN. So let's get uh, Mike's uh, insights into this. Michael Zeldin, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, listen, so uh, we've just been uh, reading through the text messages that were released last night by the the House committees. Um, You, with your uh, keen legal mind, have reviewed them. Give us your take on what this adds up to. Well, in some sense, what you come into reading them is what you can take out of it. But I come into reading it sort of neutrally and say, does this support the notion that the president of the United States was using the powers of his office for personal political gain? And it seems clearer to me than obscure that the text messages that came from Volcker and others support the notion that at play here was an effort to get the Ukrainians to investigate Biden, Hunter Biden, Vice President Biden, and the company that Hunter was associated with in exchange for a visit to Washington and the release of military aid. And that is objectionable legally, I think. It's uh, probably... Uh, violation of the extortion statutes. It's a stretch a bit, but I think it it fits it. It also is what I think is quintessentially an abuse of the powers of his office. Well, you just put the finger on what I think is going to be a critical issue moving forward. Is this an impeachment 
about generic abuse of power, which, of course, you know, impeachment can be whatever the House decides it wants to impeach on. And it seems on its face an abuse of the president's powers of his office because he's he's using it for purely for politics rather than the advancement of some U.S. foreign policy, generic U.S. foreign policy interest. But is it a crime? Is there a crime here taking these text messages and putting it through, putting it next to the transcript of the phone call? You mentioned extortion. Now, these text messages that, you know, you have the, the reference by Taylor to the holdup of military assistance, but the smoking gun in the text messages is the explicit linkage between a White House meeting and the um, a White House meeting and a statement from Zelensky that they're going to investigate the Bidens and 2016 electron assistance. That seems not quite as um, hard for making a case for extortion. Is there, tell me, as a, as, a, as a former prosecutor yourself, you know, would you make this an extortion case? Would you make it a bribery case? Would you make it a campaign finance case? Or would you acknowledge, well, we don't really have enough to make this a criminal case right now, so impeachment should be about generic abuse of power rather than a violation of a specific crime? Okay, so let's unpack a couple of things there. First, I think it's the majority view that treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors does not require a violation of a criminal statute. In fact, when this was drafted, there were very few criminal statutes. It was mostly English common law. And the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, which you know were common in English parliament at the time, had as a common denominator that the official somehow abused the power of his office and therefore was unfit to serve. So one need not prove a crime in a statutory sense in order for it to trigger what was contemplated by the drafters in the high crimes and misdemeanors phrase. Let me just stop you right there for a moment, though, because, yes, that's a good originalist argument about what the framers intended when they wrote the Constitution. But as a practical matter, in terms of precedent, we've had three presidential impeachments uh, that have gone, the House has spent time on. One, Andrew Johnson was all about violation of the Tenure of Office Act, a violation of law. Number two, Nixon, it was about obstruction of justice in a criminal procedure seating to cover up a burglary, a violation of law. And of course, with Bill Clinton, it was about perjury, a violation of law. So this would be a break. This would be unique in American constitutional history to have an, a, an impeachment that's about a generic abuse of office rather than violation of a specific federal statute. Right. Maybe. I'm not sure so much. that. Well, no, it, 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 that, uh, factually, that's just right. Whether whether that's a barrier to doing it is another question, but I'm just saying factually, historically, that's what presidential impeachments have been about. Yeah, well, except Andrew Johnson was, generally speaking, abuse, uh, a charge with failing to carry out the desires of the Republican-controlled Congress over Reconstruction. He disagreed with them, and he was impeached over that political disagreement. But 
we don't have to debate the history of prior impeachment. It's, it's mostly most speaking. of the articles were about violation of the Tenure of Office Act, right. a, a law that was later declared unconstitutional, by the right. way. But right. go ahead. Right. It's a much easier case to make if there's a crime that is articulable and people understand that and that the impeachment derives from that, but it's not a prerequisite. The prerequisite is that the person violate the obligations of his office by abusing its powers. And it seems to me that the evidence still is evolving, but it seems to me that a prima facie case has been made that between the president of the United States, his emissary, Rudy Giuliani, the president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, there was a clear understanding that the president would do something he's officially obligated to do in exchange for something that's personally, politically beneficial to him. Well, there, wait, so uh, Michael, there you're talking about releasing the military assistance as opposed to meeting with Zelensky in the Oval Office because he's not, uh, he's not officially obligated to do that. That's right. And I think one could probably listening to this call say, well, he's not he's still the president of the United States. He doesn't have to do what Congress has you know, authorized him to do so that the pushback would be he is not doing something that he ever has to do. He's doing something that Congress has asked him to do. But it seems to me that if we were in a court of law to answer my ask answer Mike's question, probably this is not a case that one would bring because there are all these complicating factors given that the defendant would be the president of the United States. But I think conceptually, what we have here is this violation of public trust. That is that you will not use the powers of your office for personal political gain, whether that violates the law or whether that's something that you have sort of the privilege of doing in a, in a, in a, in a broad sense because of your Article II presidential powers, it seems on its face to be that which the Federalist Paper 65 urged as the proper analysis of what is a high crimes or misdemeanor, which is what I said, which are those offenses that proceed from the misconduct of public men, a violation of their public trust. Well, since this is a ultimately a political matter and the uh, American people are going to have to come along and support impeachment for, uh, or at least a, for, for a conviction to happen in the Senate, then, you know, you have to you have to figure out whether the American people are going to are going to be persuaded by this. And it strikes me that, you know, what you're talking, first of all, they're not going to be looking, most Americans aren't going to be looking at the Federalist Papers. Uh, they're going to be hearing these arguments. They're not going to hear that specific laws have clearly been violated, although a lot of people will say they have been, but that won't be dispositive, as the lawyers say. And they already kind of come to this, or a lot of Americans already come to this with a pretty cynical attitude about politics and politicians and how politicians at the end of the day are corrupt and do their work for their own benefit and not for the benefit of the American people. So it seems there's still a long distance to go to sort of shock the conscience of millions and millions of Americans who are going to have to support impeachment before this actually um, happens. If you were involved in 
this process and uh, were drafting articles of impeachment, were you know, involved in, in these hearings, bringing witnesses before the committee and kind of laying out the case to the American people. What do you think the most compelling argument would be to move people uh, toward impeachment? Well, as I said, I, I am a long way from believing that an impeachable offense has been committed. I just said that they have made sort of a prima facie argument, a, a first step analysis that the president of the United States was using the powers of his office for personal political gain. So like anyone bringing a case in a court of law or in the court of public opinion, you now have to garner the facts to support that theory. And we have had one witness, Volcker, yesterday, who provided us these text messages, which seem to corroborate what the whistleblower said in his complaint that they, or her complaint that there was a an abuse of the powers of the office that was sufficiently alarming to bring this to the inspector general's attention and to the attention of the congressional oversight committees, that we have the text of the communications between the president and Zelensky in that you know partial summary of the call, which seems to, again, lay out that case. And now what you need to do is bring in other witnesses who can corroborate what is, you know, sort of facially apparent. And if you can't bring that, if you don't get those witnesses and you can't muster the evidence necessary to lock down that this was, in the lawyer's language, a quid pro quo, a tit for tat, then I don't think um, the American people are going to support it. And I think they'll accept that cynical view that politicians all do this and let's just get on to the 2020 election. Well, look, I will uh, point out there's a two-sided nature to these text messages. They are damning. Uh, But they also compromise the, uh, at least certainly, Kurt Volker, uh, the ambassador, uh, the special envoy, and uh, Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union. They both are complicit in this idea of pressuring the Ukrainians to make these statements that will please the president about investigating his political rival and using a White House meeting, at a minimum, as, a, as leverage for that. So they're, you know, they're compromised. They're yeah, but, not but Isikoff, the they're White com- Hats in this. But they're, yeah, they're compromised, but the way in which they're compromised affirms the underlying conspiracy. So they're so they're compromised no, well, in the my, way in the my, way yes, they are. in the way that like you know you know one of the witnesses you know in a mafia prosecution is another member of the family you know so I I don't know no, if no, that's uh, yeah yeah I I get that but my point about this is that I think that after these closed door depositions are done the Democrats have to put on a public hearing or public hearings in which they need that dramatic witness who can lay out the case, talk about the pressure that was coming from the White House, express regret for it. And from everything I'm told, Volcker, the very first witness, didn't do that uh, yesterday. He dumped on Rudy Giuliani, but he did not dump on the president. I talked to one senior Democrat who was in the room who said he was not a killer witness for us. So they need that. They need that killer witness who's going to go in there and be the John Dean or the Alexander Butterfield and give strong testimony that's going to help them make the case to the public 
And so they have the text messages, which is great, but they don't yet have the public witness who can bring it all home. Right. I think that I think that's a fair analysis. I don't know that there is a single witness, uh, a la John Dean, who can lay out the thing that um, is going to be the, the, the heart of the matter, which is this abuse of office. But and the complicating factor, of course, is that we're talking about a lot of stuff which is classified and it may not be very easily held in public. But it seems to me, Michael, that and Dan, that there is a opportunity among Bill Taylor, who was the, the charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in the Ukraine after um, the ambassador was uh, recalled, and um, Volker and the recalled ambassador, all of whom I think collectively can tell a story that says what was going on here was this, which is that Rudy Giuliani was at the behest of the president coming over to to Europe, to Ukraine and, and, and elsewhere in order to promote this theory that the Bidens were corrupt and that the Ukraine assisted the Democrats in the 2016 election and that all U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine was dependent on gathering evidence to support this now largely debunked theory of Giuliani. And we didn't necessarily understand that at the time that we were acting, but now looking back in time, it's crystally clear to us that military aid, that the meeting at the the White House with Zelensky and the president and other foreign assistance was all contingent on the need for Ukraine to provide the president with the information that Giuliani said they possessed with respect to the interference with the 2016 election and the corruption of um, the, the Bidens. And I think that maybe there are a couple of witnesses who can look back and say, yes, this is this is as I analyze it from where I sit today, what is what is clear. And then the American people have to say, is is that enough? Is that just politics or is that is that above and beyond? But, uh, you know, going back to the, the the Watergate analogy and John Dean, you'll recall, Mike, that uh, the dean was actually a active participant in the cover up. And it wasn't until right. he realized he that he was you know, going to be the scapegoat that he decided to become a, uh, a, a witness. So it is also possible that, you know, Kirk Volker uh, has has given his first deposition. He could go from being reluctant witness and supporter of Trump to being John Dean in the uh, impeachment hearing room. So we may not have uh, heard the last of that one. That's right. And if Bill Taylor and if the recalled U.S. ambassador um, give further testimony to the Democrats' theory of quid pro quo, then maybe Volcker, um, as you say, has a second interview where he acknowledges that what they're saying in hindsight now is is more true than less. And there's one last point, which Go is that there's also Gordon Sondland. And, you know, Sondland is a, an interesting character. Uh, well, I was doing a little bit of reading on him, and he actually had, I think he'd been an, an early supporter of Trump, and then he he dropped out. He he stopped backing Trump because it, when when I think when Trump announced, made some of the comments he made about Muslims and announcing the Muslim ban and said he couldn't support him. And then then he came back and gave like a million dollars uh, to his inaugural 
uh, committee after after Trump was ele- elected. So he clearly has a lot of information here, and uh, who knows which way he ends up going. That's so, right. In fact, what's interesting about Sondland is that he seems to be in these text messages bantering as people tend to do with on on text messaging. And then he gets this message which says, essentially, is, is it right that we're holding up military aid on um, for the Ukraine uh, for the for, because of the president's you know, need for this you know personal information on on the Bidens? And there's this four and a half hour delay, and then there's this what looks to be a very scripted text from Sondland, which says, "I believe you are." So it's as if he consulted with the White House and said, look, we've got a situation here. What do I say? And so he may be a supporter of the president or not, but it may. what the question that you want to know is, who did he consult with in writing this text message after this four and a half hour? Right. Did they say to him, yes, this is a problem. Here's our cover story. Or did they say, no, 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 Taylor, Volcker, all these guys are wrong. Really, everyone is misunderstanding this. There is no quid pro quo. This is just about transparency and uh, reforms that we want Zelensky to undertake, uh, as he promised during his campaign. So Sunderland is right. an interesting I think that, that'll be That will be a very interesting deposition and hopefully public hearing when uh, Sunderland gets to ask those questions about who he consulted with at the White House to uh, before writing that message to Bill Taylor. But before we uh, uh, leave here and sign off, I should point out that in the meantime, while all this is going on, Trump is only giving more material to the Democrats to write the inevitable articles of impeachment right now, starting with that extraordinary exchange on the White House lawn in which he says he's calling on both Ukraine and China and China to investigate Joe Biden. The communist government of China should do the bidding of the Trump campaign and dig up dirt on the former vice president. And that prompted one Mitt Romney to write today on Twitter, quote, by all appearances, the president's brazen and unprecedented appeal to China and to Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden is wrong and appalling. Appalling. That's pretty strong word for uh, Mitt Romney to be uh, to be using. So there's uh, yet another indication that the uh, Trump support in the Republican uh, Senate may not be 100% at this point. Yeah, and the question is, what people have been asking is whether there is a kind of going to be a cascade effect. You know, will the dam break at some point because a small number of Republicans in the Senate turn against uh, Trump or at least are willing to seriously criticize him or even uh, support an impeachment inquiry? So... We'll have to see. And, and of course, there are a number of them who are up for, for re-election, who are in, in states that, uh, that Trump did not win. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how they, that plays out. Mike, what do you think? You know, there is this, there was this notion in the Mueller report of can you obstruct justice in, in plain view? And, and the answer Mueller gave was yes. And in some sense, the president, to your point, Dan, when he calls upon other countries to to investigate U.S. citizens, and when he admits that, yes, in fact, I did ask Zelensky to do this, and he tweets out, as the president of the United States, I have an absolute right, even a duty, 
to investigate or have investigated, all caps, corruption, and that would include asking or suggesting other countries help us out. I mean, in some sense, he's doubling down on his right to do this. And, you know, that's in some sense how this might play out, too, which is the president saying, I am doing what I am entitled to do. And the Democrats, and we'll see if there are any others besides Romney who say, no, actually, no, that's not what you have an absolute right to do. You do not have an absolute right to ask countries to investigate corruption of your political opponents for your personal advantage. And that's what, you know, the people of the United States who are listening to this are going to have to make the conclusion of whether or not this is beyond the norm of of corrupt politics that they accept or um, is just part and parcel of the whole swamp and and he's doing nothing different than yeah. anybody else I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting and important point to end on it's sort of the politics of brazenness in a way Trump normalizes himself by going out there and being so open about his conduct and doubling down on it in front of the whole world and uh the question is, as you point out, you know, is there going to be some limit here beyond which people just won't won't accept it, and uh, and you know, Republicans in the Senate primarily won't accept it, and uh, we will just have to see. Yeah, we'll get we'll see whether we ever get to an enough enough moment. But you know, the the reality is that people may have come to that enough enough moment at the ballot in 2020, and this whole impeachment drama may drive people in directions that they might otherwise not have gone, which is to support well, the president. we will be um, watching this very closely on Skullduggery in the uh, days and weeks to come, and it sounds like uh, there's going to be plenty of new revelations and new testimony to talk about. Michael, thanks for joining us once again on thanks Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike. We're, we're looking forward to having you back. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Thanks to former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Michael Zeldin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.